Hello everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. If you would, please open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. And while you're turning there, uh, just as a quick recap of what we went over last week, um, we read over Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. And in this, um, the midst of Isaiah's prophesying, we find this moment of uh, when God is going to end oppression, when he's going to end violence, and he's going to give this son. Um, and we see this messianic figure who will stand the test of time, who will be eternal, whose government and his righteousness and justice will be eternal. Um, and so as Christians, we recognize this to be Jesus Christ, who is the son, who is the beloved son, who now reigns forever in heaven. Um, but still with Isaiah, he's still in his own time. He still has a society which is flawed, much like our own society. And so we're going to read over what it is um, after learning of these things. So starting with verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Assyrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah now faithfully proclaims the word which comes against Jacob, that is, the nation of Israel. Though Isaiah was in the southern kingdom of Judah, God still never forgets his people, warning them of the judgments to come unless they should turn in repentance and faith. This includes the northern kingdom of Israel, which had rejected Davidic rule and Jerusalem's temple. As such, that the word of the Lord comes against Jacob, Israel, reminds us that the word isn't just a spoken or written concept as we find in, let's say, English with words. For God, the word was to come to pass. It was an inevitable conclusion, assuming the people continued on their present course. That all the people will know is evidence of the fact that the corruption has enveloped the entire nation. It was not only one particular people group which had fallen into the trap of sin, but all the people therein. Thus, the call to repentance and faith is one which they all need to heed, regardless of their status or class in society. But instead of doing this, they all seem to falter, and they fall in, into pride and arrogance in their hearts. That pride and arrogance leads to their own power. They believe that, they, that though they should be brought down low by other nations or by God's own hand, they will simply rise up again just as the sun rises. They believe they are powerful in their own right, trusting in themselves in order to pull themselves out of the mire of destruction. It does not matter what form that destruction takes. It could have been an earthquake to hit the area, or the warfare which they had previously with Syria, or the coming Assyrians. All in all, the people had this belief that even if brought down, they could rebuild. Not only rebuild, but actually make things even better than it once was. Thus, their pride and arrogance had led them to what one scholar says is a form of practical atheism. They do not believe they need God. 
They might proclaim with their lips God exists, but there is nothing which shows that they actually seek him or his truth. As such, God raises enemies against Israel because of their pride, their arrogance, and because of their faithlessness. He brings those from the east and the west to come against the people for their wickedness. While Rezin may believe he and his people are safe, little does he know they are far from safe. Instead, they are in deadly peril. We then come to the prophet telling us that all of this is the reason why God's anger is not abated. Indeed, God's hand is still stretched out. This concept of being stretched out can have two connotations depending on context. The first is God stretches out his hand for salvation, as we'll find later on in Isaiah. The second is, as here, it represents God's judgment or doom. God's hand is against them in judgment because of their pride and arrogance. The question is, what is the people's response to all this? And now we come to verse 13 through 17 where we learn what happens. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all of this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So the response that the people give is one of refusal to turn toward God. Earlier, when Isaiah was first commissioned by God, we saw how his ministry would more likely lead people to hardness of hearts rather than peace with God. As it is, God knows the words of the prophet will have little effect because he already does so much for the people and everything he does has little effect. Thus, when God chastises them, the response of the people is not to turn toward God but to continue to ignore God. Thus, the result will be the taking away of those in leadership who are cut off from the people now. The head and the tail and the palm branch and the reed represents the totality of the devastation for the government. Those who are considered the leaders will find judgment and the people will be leaderless. The elder and the honored man represents just this, the self-serving leadership of the people. Meanwhile, the prophets represent those who, instead of speaking the truth to the leadership and to the people, continue to give them justification for what they're doing. The prophets, who are meant to speak truth into society and culture, are doing the exact opposite. They're speaking untruth. They're speaking lies. The result of foolish leadership is foolish people. The result of corrupt leadership is a corrupt people. The result of sinful leadership is a sinful people. All in all, the result of such poor leadership leads to the people themselves being swallowed up in the darkness. Corruption is a terrible thing, and it always flows downhill. Whereas one would expect there to be rejoicing in the young men of the day who are self-sufficient and strong, in the end God does not take any delight in them. Likewise, those who are on the other end of the spectrum, those who are often the downtrodden in society, uh, those who are weak, the fatherless and the widows, God does not have compassion on them either. Why is that? Because whether young or old, strong or weak, none of them seeks God. 
They all seek evil. None of them speaks what is wise and true, but instead they continue to proclaim follies. As such, a society as this is rejected by God because it has no faith in him. When the society tries to stand on its own, and when the people try to live a life without God who is light, then it leads to darkness for all. Because of this, again, we find his anger is unabated and his hand is still stretched out. Because of their lack of repentance and faith, because the leaders lead astray, and because the people willingly follow behind, God remains angry at his people. The main point of these verses are to show us the results of the corruption of the people. Despite God making himself known to his people, they continue to turn the other way, their own way, in order to live their lives and to guide the people, and the people just simply follow. As such, it leads to the whole of the people falling astray, turning toward godless and evil means rather than God himself. As such, God's hand remains outstretched against them because of their lack of faith and repentance. A common theme throughout the prophets is their critique on the society at large. The prophets were able to distinguish between what is good and bad based upon the word of the Lord given to them. As such, they were able to proclaim the truth to the nations because the truth came from God. By disregarding the truth, the people continue to live in darkness of their sin. This has been seen many times in regards to the leadership of the day. In the time of the prophets and before, leaders were often seen to have a far greater impact on the people. We remember in Genesis, for example, when Pharaoh took Sarah from Abraham. The result was God's judgment, not just on Pharaoh, but on his whole house. Um, When the same thing happened with Abimelech as well, he says to Abraham, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought me and my kingdom a great sin? Um, So we see how when the leader does something wrong, it can cause serious side effects to the people. And it's interesting when you consider it. Often in our times, we can think little of leadership, often because we tend to be a people who focus on individual liberty. Yet, it is likely the ancients had a far more right than we understand even today. When the leadership is corrupted, it leads to the people being corrupted as well. I can think of former President Bill Clinton as an example of this, and I'm I'm picking on him, I know. Everyone does, right? But still, prior to his sexual deviances, it was discouraged for individuals to live in those kinds of lifestyles, for the most part, in society. When the highest leader of the land, however, follows such a lifestyle, others are encouraged to do the same. We justify ourselves by saying, well, if they did it, then why can't I? But like with President Clinton, justifications occur when we allow leaders to live as they want rather than in the way of truth. When we allow them to purposefully lead us into darkness rather than light. Indeed, when there is corruption in leadership, it leads to all sides justifying evil. Those who follow justify their evil based upon what the leadership does, and the leadership justifies their own evil, believing it is a necessary evil for the sake of the common good. And we see that today on all sides of the spectrum politically. And that's the danger in being called to leadership. The truth of the matter is, you are responsible for those whom you lead. If you lead astray, then it will cause others to be led astray. If you proclaim untruths, then people will believe what is false. 
They will live in such a manner as this, and you will be culpable for your failures as a leader. The fact that the prophets so often critique the leadership shows that this is the case. Thus far in Isaiah, we have repeatedly seen the concept of the leadership failing their duties. It comes at a much larger focus for the prophets because it is so important for the leaders to be accountable to the truth. Because as we have seen, where the leaders go, the people go. Indeed, consider the words of the Proverbs concerning what the king is supposed to be like. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 16.12 Likewise, by justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Proverbs 29.4 And if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Proverbs 29.14 In all of these, we find the way in which a king and which leadership should look like. Yet in Isaiah, we are finding kings contrary to these ways. Instead of trusting in God, they are trusting in their own might. Instead of turning toward God during their problems, they turn toward their own deliverances. In such a kingdom, there can only be destruction because it is only by faith in God we have a foundation. And it's only in God that we find out what justice is um, and righteousness and all these things. Notice, though, it is not only the king's which are critiqued in this passage. It is also the prophets. From head to tail, God is angry over the whole leadership spectrum. Those who should be speaking the truth to the king and to the people are instead speaking lies and deceit. The corruption goes deep for the people. For that which they ought to know, they know not, and those who are to teach them, teach them fallacies. Now, it would be easy for Christians to critique just political leadership. Not only would that be easy, but the truth is it would be incredibly easy to focus on politicians and other cultural leaders of the day. Let's be real. Um, They tend to all go wrong and be able to be criticized. But the truth is we need to be cautious ourselves. Within Western Christianity, we have seen this tendency to drape the concept of God over the philosophies of the day. We need to make sure that we are always checking what we believe in the lifestyle that we live um, and what we proclaim against the truth of the word of God. By straying from what God has delivered and revealed about himself and us through the scriptures, we end up cheapening what we believe. Sure, it may sound appeasing to the ears when we do this, but when reality happens, it falls apart and it leads people leaving the faith which was so fragile to begin with. By laying our beliefs and our proclamations on the truth, however, it means that when reality happens, we will not be discouraged. It means we will be steadfast against the storm. Not because of our own abilities to navigate, but because we know the promises are sure and the truth which was proclaimed is just that. It's truth. Thus, as Christians who have been given a prophetic voice to our own culture, it is wise of us to remember the prophets of old. It will not do for us to proclaim anything other than the truth. We know that truth exists because we know God exists. Thus, we are able to search out the truth and proclaim it. It can be easy for us to be led astray by the events happening in our world, just as previous generations had been led astray. But if we should seek the truth, then we will be able to cut through the lies which permeate fallen societies at large. Now we have dealt with the leadership, religious and secular, so to speak. 
But there are more chastisements to be found in the passage in Isaiah. We will deal with them just as Isaiah does. The first then is with the young men. Normally, young men are considered to be the strong and durable, as we saw in the passage. Very often, they are seen as the future for society. They are the protectors, but they're also the ones to carry on the knowledge from the past. One could even apply this to not just young men, but really all young people. They really are the future. Yet, if the young are corrupted, what does that say about the future? It says it will be corrupted as well. The young are often warned in scripture concerning their enthusiasm. Youthful passion is always to be tempered by wisdom. Indeed, consider what we read in 2 Timothy 2.22-26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we see how wisdom is what tempers the youthful passions by having them seek righteousness, faith, love, and peace, Um, to not be quarrelsome, to uh, correct opponents in gentleness, not just bashing them over the head. Um, We see all these things. By not coming to conclusions based upon their passions alone, but by living and coming to conclusions for the glory of God and truth, this truth is far too important for us to let go in our youth. And thus, we are reminded to continue to follow after the truth and not succumb to simply our passions. Now, the youth in today's text, however, are youth who have been led astray without considering the ramifications of those who lead them. I would say, in our own culture today, it is much the same. We have far too many individuals who have been told what to think rather than how to think. Because of this, they are easily swayed by their emotions, which leads them to going in different directions, like a reed blowing in the wind. Whether or not things are true are of less value as how one feels about them, or that which is true is only what they have been told to think is true, even if it doesn't actually fit reality. One can see why God would find no joy in the young who so willingly reject truth, even rejecting the seeking of truth for lies. And that's what we're seeing in Isaiah's day, and to be honest, we're seeing it in our own day as well. Finally, the last to be seen are those who are most marginalized in society. Again, the young men, they represent the strength of society, while the marginalized represent the weakest. Um, The orphan and the widow... Throughout the scriptures, the law, the prophets, those who are most marginalized are most focused on because they are most often taken advantage of by society. Um, God, though, he cares deeply that they receive the same justice as anyone else. And you can see Exodus 22, 21 through 24, for example, as a reference to this. Yet, what do we find here in this text? Well, these individuals who are often the ones who cry against injustice committed against them have become corrupted as well. This is where our society gets it wrong. 
Previously, we talked about how easy it is for us to make justifications for, um, for ourselves. The same is true with the marginalized. Instead of us keeping everyone at the same standard of morality and justice, very often in society we justify the wickedness of a particular people group because they are marginalized and in most need. This, however, runs contrary to what we learn here in the scriptures. The truth is, everyone needs to be held accountable for their actions. Justification is never allowed in the scripture for wrongdoing, for sins. Every individual person must seek justice and morality regardless of their social standing. It makes no difference if the liar or thief is rich or poor. They are still liars and thieves and they still have to be held accountable. Now, some might look at all of this and conclude, well, if certain groups are less moral and more corrupt, even when marginalized, then we shouldn't help them at all. Well, no, that would not be the point, and you'd be missing the point, actually, if you were to say that. The point is, no matter the circumstances, we are to seek justice and be moral. It doesn't mean we just automatically close these things off for a group just because they are more likely to be immoral or unjust. The same way followers should not simply follow, but should make sure that what they um, are following is in the truth. So we should always seek justice and morality regardless of the situation. All of this comes down to the people knowing the truth, though. The word of the Lord was made known and was made plain to the people, and yet they disregarded it. If we disregard the word of the Lord in our own time, then it will lead to the same ramifications. Sin results in corruption regardless of the society which we are in. As such, we need to make sure we are all being made accountable to the truth. We cannot make excuses or justifications for each other based upon who we are. It doesn't matter leader, follower, rich or poor, strong or weak. We all have responsibilities with our freedom to seek what is good and right in the world. In a world in desperate need of truth, it is our responsibility to seek and proclaim the truth. In fact, it's everyone's responsibility to do this. So... Be cautioned, be warned by what we read today. It is easy for any of us to fall astray to what we should be and how we should be. Sinfulness is a human problem, and because of that, so is corruption, which it brings. These things in Isaiah could easily apply to us in our own time. Learn from them then. And seek to be better than they were by heeding the word of the Lord here and now in your own life. And all of this, I mean, it pretty clearly leads to the gospel. I mean, the gospel begins with our origins. All humanity, no matter who you are, no matter your race, your gender, um, we are all created in the image of God. That God created this entire cosmos And he is the first cause of all things. And out of this cosmos, out of this wonderful world and all the things that we see, the stars in the universe that he created, it's humanity that bears his image. Um, And no matter who you are, you have this if you are a human person. Every human person has dignity, sanctity, and worth to life, no matter who they are, what they look like. Because that's an intrinsic quality for all humans. And that's where 
to be honest, as Christians, we need to make sure we speak this because in our world today, there are so many who feel marginalized just because of something like their skin color or their status in society. Yet the truth is, every single person is truly unique and wonderful made in the image of God. And that is a wonderful thing that we should rejoice in um, as people who are created that way. But then we have a problem, right? And that is marginalization happens. Um, we have people who are mistreated because of their place in society, whether it be the widows or whether it be the orphans or, or the sojourners of the land that the Bible also talks about as well. Um, or even in our own society where the color of one's skin could be seen as something which would marginalize you. Ultimately, this is a result of the fall. This is the result of sin. When we refuse to look at the way the world is as God wants us to see it, we start to look at the world and make our own categories for things. And when we do this, it often leads to hypocrisy. It leads to us um, overvaluing and undervaluing people. It leads to us doing things which are incorrect, um, where we make status more important than anything else. We make zeros and ones the end-all, be-all for all things. And it also leads to us sinning against each other just in basic ways, lying, cheating, stealing, um, whether or not we also murder one another, which is seen too in this horrific world. And all these things happen because sin has this effect on us. It causes us to want to go out of our way to hurt and take pride and arrogance and cling to these things instead of love and mercy and grace. And so because of this, we're all guilty. We've all oppressed. We've all been oppressors. We've all failed miserably. I mean, in this passage in Isaiah today, we see how even back then they suffered from the same things. They were all arrogant in their own belief that they could rise above on their own means. Yet the truth is, no human can rise above in their own means. We're all flawed. We all fail. I fail, you fail. Now the question is, how can we rise above them? How can we fly higher if we can't do it on our own. Indeed, if we are so guilty of sin and we have caused so much chaos instead of order and we've caused so much pain, how on earth can we be redeemed? Can we do enough good to ever undo all the evil that we do? I know I can't and I suspect you can as well. So then that leads the question, what can be done? Well, thankfully, God has done something. He has dawned light in our darkness. And this light is his son, Jesus Christ. And that through his life, death, and resurrection in time, space, history, and flesh, we can be redeemed for our sins. And that his righteousness can be given to each and every one of us. Not because of something that we do. It's all because of what Christ has done. And so no matter your situation, no matter what you have done in the past, you can be redeemed. Your guilt can be taken away. And all the righteousness of Christ can be given to you. And then not only this, but the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you can live a life which is truly magnificent in love. Where you can walk in God's light. And you can begin to see a true change come over you that is so different than what you once were. This is all because of Jesus Christ, where we can acknowledge God and live for him, not as a slave per se, but as obedient servants who love him. In fact, it'll be such a love that we have for our father that even 
if we were to be servants in such a way as a slave or something of that nature, we would want to be because he is so good and so mighty. And that if we had to choose between what sin offers and its slavery, which is death, or slavery to righteousness and life and God, we would choose the latter over the former. And as it is, we can be redeemed. And those who are redeemed from their sin, they can live forever in the knowledge of Jesus Christ who saves them. And they are led further and further into glory. So each one of us, we can, do, we can seek this and we can honor this and we can proclaim this to all others that Jesus Christ has come and that we don't have to be like the generation in Isaiah. Instead, we can be turned and we can be redeemed and we can take heed of what is being said and we can seek to be better and to do better. So let us do this. Not by our own might, not because we are so good, but because God is so good. And Jesus Christ has truly come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that he has come, that he has uh, lived, died, and rose again, and he continues to live even now. And Lord, we thank you because through him you have given us your spirit who guides us and that through you we are able to be truly redeemed from our sins and we can live in a way which truly honors you. And so Lord, we ask that you would continue to proclaim this truth to us through your spirit and that we would continue to believe the truth. And Lord, let us all be seekers of truth, not to be thrown aside by fallacies or conspiracies, but that we would seek only what it is that you offer and then realize it in the world around us because we know that you are the truth and therefore truth exists in our world that we can reason to and we can understand by your good grace. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us, that you would continue to guide us, and we ask that your love would overflow unto us and everyone around us. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I thank you all for joining us this Sunday service. I pray that you have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless everyone. Take care.